Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. I, I don't often say this because it doesn't often happen, but I had a really hard time getting to sleep last night. In fact, I, I had a very bad night's sleep because I ended the day by sitting down and reading cover to cover George Packer's new article in The Atlantic, The Betrayal, 20,000 word long masterful, maddening piece about what happened in Afghanistan. And to say that it is a gut punch followed by more gut punches is understating it somewhat. So that's by way of introducing George Packer, who I'm not blaming for my lost sleeps, but but good to talk with you again, George. You too, Charlie. It's always good to talk to you. Well, let's talk about this piece. This is one of the longest features The Atlantic has published in many, many years, uh, and it is a devastating portrayal of the failures, the uh, logistical failures, the political failures, the moral failures in Afghanistan. Before we get into the details of it, what, what led you to write this? Where did this story come from? It really goes back many years, Charlie. When I was covering the Iraq war for the New Yorker, I became interested in the Iraqis who worked for Americans, uh, whether it was fixers who worked with journalists like me or more interpreters and other staff who worked for the embassy and for the military, the the U.S. military. And around mid-2006, I began to realize that they were getting hunted down and killed in alarming numbers. And I wanted to know what the U.S. was doing to help them either to provide them with more protection inside Iraq or to help them get to safety in a third country, including this one? Um, And the answer was almost nothing. So I wrote a long piece in 2007 with a nearly identical title to this one called Betrayed about the Iraqis who who had counted on us for protection once this threat started because they had risked so much to work with us. It put a giant target on them. And that also became a play that ran in New York for five months. So that became the beginning of a a years-long concern with these Afghans and Iraqis who somehow get lost when things go bad, who, who we just forget about. Or we just, we claim we have an obligation, we talk about a debt, and then we don't make good on it. And so for years, I've been on and off writing about this. But this one, more than Iraq, dramatized the issue because unlike Iraq, where there was no collapse of a government and mass evacuations, this was more like Vietnam, where the war came to a calamitous end and people had to get you know, escape with their lives um, on, on the spot. And so... I knew I had to write about it again once August came and the airport became a scene of of trauma. Well, it is an incredibly dramatic story, and we can't do uh, justice to it. I I urge people to to read it. I I felt like I was watching this uh, dystopian movie of the collapse of of Afghanistan. Your your piece is a devastating indictment of uh, the Biden administration, uh, but also, frankly, um, a rather harsh portrayal of Joe Biden. But you begin the story by pointing out that it took four presidencies for America to finish abandoning Afghanistan, that it may have been left to, to Joe Biden to uh, to finish the job. But we had been in the process of abandoning Afghanistan for many, many years, hadn't we? 
I feel as if we abandoned Afghanistan the minute we got there in 2001. There was a lot of optimism and glory when the U.S. Special Forces came down on horseback and uh, the Taliban were chased into the mountains and suddenly Afghan girls were coming out of hiding and going to school and it was a kind of a euphoric moment uh, in this country and in Afghanistan, but already the U.S. was turning its attention away from Afghanistan to Iraq. And the Bush administration had basically had a policy of regime change without nation building. And that turns out to be problematic. Nation building itself is hard, if not impossible. But to think you can simply get rid of an old regime and then pretty much leave it <laughs> to a bunch of corrupt warlords to work things out is a recipe for the return of uh, the old regime, which is what happened in Afghanistan. It continued through the Obama presidency, the Trump presidency, this half-hearted commitment. Obama sent in a lot of troops and then began pulling them out almost immediately. Trump really didn't want to be there at all, but couldn't make up his mind. And finally, his envoy, Zalmay Khalilzad, cut a deal in February 2020 with the Taliban, which essentially got us off the hook. It got us uh, an exit from Afghanistan. It had nothing to say about the fate of the Afghan people. And so once that deal was signed, we were on a glide path to departure. And the, the question of what would become of the Afghans, especially women and girls, but all kinds of Afghans who had staked their lives on a vision of their country that we had made possible, a more modern and more free and more democratic country, and which had begun to be built by the Afghans themselves in Kabul and other cities, we seem to just not be interested in that any longer, as if it didn't concern us anymore. And Joe Biden's speech in April saying we would end the war and bring the last troops home, which um, many people thought was the right thing to do, and they're very good arguments for doing mm -hmm. it. The way he did it suggested that that night, the night he gave the speech, was the end of the war. And right. Ron, Ron Klain said words to that effect afterward, his chief of staff. So that is where I begin to have serious criticisms, because the, to leave that way um, as if it never mattered and as if we owed them nothing was to guarantee a tragedy, which is what came. Well, I want to talk about uh, the, the bureaucratic screw-ups uh, with the special immigration visa programs uh, and the, the political miscalculations that uh, surrounded the fall of Kabul. But uh, it's very clear from reading your piece, though, that, that Joe Biden's speech uh, in April was the culmination of many, many years of, of his disillusionment with Afghanistan, but also reflected something about his mindset when it came to all of this. Because as you read through the story, and I want to get in, into some of the, the details, you know, one of the things that's very clear is that all of these decisions had to be made, you know, by enlisted troops, you know, at the gate of the, the airport. Uh, you had, uh, you know, groups of soldiers, veterans, ordinary citizens, politicians, you know, who came together to, to save lives, who were basically trying to, you know, compensate for this massive failure by the U.S. government. And it's hard for me to escape the conclusion that much of the tone of this was set by Joe Biden, who frankly, just wanted to be done with it and did not seem, and, and this this is 
this is bizarre because he, you know, ran on compassion and talking about veterans. He ends every speech, God bless our troops. But he really did not seem particularly concerned about our Afghan allies that were left behind. Is, is that an unfair statement? I think it's fair. I think the evidence is is pretty overwhelming. There's a lot in, in what you just said, Charlie, yeah, but yeah. we could add that in saying, may God protect our troops, he did not think that leaving Afghan interpreters yeah. who worked and fought alongside those troops behind might have a damaging effect on our troops, which it has had. Devastating. That's why in August, so many of them uh, got no sleep for two weeks uh, in in working their phones and finding contacts at the airport to try to get their interpreters into the airport and out of the country because it was a matter of honor and shame for them. And it's the president did not seem to grasp that side of it. It was all about the troops service and making sure that there's not one more American casualty in a war that it, uh, has gone on too long and needs to end. That has honor to it. But the other side of it, then we're, we're out of here, does not have honor to it. So Biden has a record here that I looked into last year uh, when I began mm -hmm. paying attention to this. During the Vietnam War, Gerald Ford called Democratic and Republican senators to the Oval Office in April of 75 as South Vietnam was collapsing and pleaded with them to appropriate some hundreds of millions of dollars primarily for the evacuation of South Vietnamese allies. And Biden's answer, which has been in, mm -hmm. in the record, was no. Uh, I'll do it for American evacuations, not $1 for them. And he later gave a speech on the floor of the Senate a week before the fall of Saigon saying, we don't owe them anything. We don't need to evacuate one or 100,001 South Vietnamese. That is for essentially NGOs to do. All we have an obligation to do is get our own people out and some foreign diplomats. So he had like a blind spot as if once the war, the American war was over, we had no more obligations. And I ask myself, where does this come from? Because many things he has said about Afghanistan, beginning back in 2010, when he told Richard Holbrook, Obama's envoy to Afghanistan, uh, where I'm not sending an, uh, my boy back there to die for women's rights. We don't owe them this. Fuck it. Nixon and Kissinger got away with it. We can too. In other words, we can get out without being accused of abandoning them. There's some. These are direct quotes for people who understand. These are, are, are direct quotes when he basically, you know, he's talking with Holbrook and he says they're discussing obligation to Afghans who had trusted and worked with the U.S. And he said, fuck that. We don't have to worry about that. We did it in Vietnam. Nixon and Kissinger got away with it. Exactly. I, I, it's hard to it's hard to s swallow that. And some people have told me they don't believe he said it. Well, it's in Holbrook's diary from that day. So yeah, it's an audio diary. Yeah, an audio diary. So what is that? I think it is a kind of blind spot in his sense of where his and our obligations are. He is famously empathetic. Um, and cares, I think, deeply and genuinely about his country and its troops, and of course, his family and his community. But somehow for Biden, that moral imagination just goes dead when it comes to uh, a Green Beret interpreter who is 
trying to get out of the country or a, a, a girl who he actually met in a classroom in Kabul in 2002 who said, you cannot leave, you must stay until I become a doctor. And Biden told me that story in 2003 or four. And that story really stayed with him. But then it seems to have disappeared and that girl disappeared. And when he was later asked, do we owe the Afghan women and girls anything? He said, zero responsibility. Yeah, so no, I don't. Yeah. Yeah. So these, this is a strange hardness. And I feel that when he's asked about it, he digs in, he, he gets even more resolved to say no, uh, because perhaps, I don't know, maybe he, I don't want to psychoanalyze someone I don't know, but perhaps he has a slightly bad conscience about it. But the, the thing that matters is when he was in a position to think about those people in April and give his administration the signal that this was a high, if not the top priority, he didn't do it. And because he didn't do it, the rest of the government followed that lead and didn't act with any sense of urgency because to actually start evacuating Afghans beginning in April would have taken a lot of effort, a lot of coordination and some political will. So it needed the president and the president was not there. Okay. So this is the key question for people who are thinking, look, um, we needed to get out of the forever war. However it ended, it was going to be chaotic he was playing the cards that he'd been left by his predecessors, including Donald Trump. Uh, and he just didn't want any more Americans to die. So, uh, no, nothing would have turned out really any differently. You are, you obviously are not accepting that, that there, there were alternative paths. There were things that could have been done to avert the, this, the human catastrophe that, that unfolded. Not only that could have been done, but that were being, described and urged on the administration day after day, week after week, beginning in April, by members of Congress, a bipartisan House group called the Honoring Our Promises Working Group, by advocates for refugees and veterans groups, the kinds of groups that you would think Biden would really pay special attention to. They were in private meetings, in memos, and then publicly, including with a demonstration outside the White House, urging various measures on the administration. So it's, no one could say they had never thought of these things. And I could tell you what some of them were, the things that yeah. people should have to confront if they want to say it was always going to be messy. They could have assembled lists of names mm -hmm. of Afghans who had applied for the special immigrant visas, of Afghans who were in danger because they were in the Afghan military, especially women, because they were journalists, because of their human rights activism, because they were women's rights activists. They could have assembled names, contact information, and been ready to uh, contact these people when everything fell apart. Instead, they had done none of that. In fact, Axios just published, uh, I think this morning or last night, uh, leaked notes from a White House meeting on August 14th, the day before Kabul fell, in which the NSC is uh, is saying we need to find out who our local staff are at the embassy in Kabul and whether they want to leave. This is mm. August fourteenth. The and day they don't have, they don't, have they don't even have that order. They could have begun evacuations in small numbers in a low profile way using charter aircraft to Guam which we used for the, the Vietnamese evacuation in 1975. And the Guam option was a big part of what the advocates were urging. They could have 
appointed an evacuation czar, which we had in 75, someone who was in charge of this with presidential authority so that the various agencies of the U.S. government were forced to contribute personnel and resources and work together to solve this problem. They could have negotiated with the Taliban, with whom we had a lot of leverage on our way out, and told the Taliban, we're leaving, but we're leaving with some Afghans, and you are going to allow us to do that by keeping these airfields open, by not interfering with these convoys, etc. I could go on and on. There are lots and lots of things that were obvious ways to begin to get Afghans out before it was too late. And they had their reasons for not doing it, mm-hmm. but I don't think those reasons uh, hold up very well. Well, let's talk about some of this. I mean, you describe in some detail just the bureaucratic frustration, how slow the process was, levels of incompetence where documents were lost or you know needed to be replaced over and over and over again. But some of this also was choice. We go back into the Trump administration, Stephen Miller's uh, influence in slowing down the special uh, immigrant visas. Uh, he was not interested in bringing over Afghans. So some of this was a political choice. And then in for the Biden folks, they also were concerned, as you described in the article, about the political optics of bringing too many Afghan refugees because they were afraid of the way that that would play on Fox. So some of this is just sort of incompetence in inertia, but some of this is the result of specific choices as well. Right, right. You're exactly right. There is bureaucratic resistance, which is always there. And in this case, really hard to overcome because you've got the State Department, the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Defense, all of which had to be told this is the president's priority. We're not going to keep walking one step forward, one step back on this. We're actually going to start doing evacuations rather than thinking we can solve this problem by speeding up the issuing of visas, which take years and years. That was their approach. It was never going to work. It was They were always going to be outrun by events in Afghanistan, which is what proved true. So there was bureaucratic resistance. There was also political resistance. My sources told me that the president's political advisors saw this as a loser at the very moment when the southern border had become yeah, a major right. problem with Central American migrants coming across the southern border in great numbers. To then have tens of thousands of Muslims from Afghanistan coming in what are they going to say on Fox News? So, And in fact, the Republicans since August have demagogued this issue and have accused Biden of bringing mm-hmm. in a lot of unvetted Muslims. J.D. Vance has made that one of his talking points in his Ohio Senate campaign. But that's not a reason not to do it. Anticipating what Fox News is going to say about you is not a reason to do anything. Uh, but they, I think they use that as kind of a political... Um, fear that answered what they already, what Biden had already let be known, which was, this is not going to be a priority. We're going to do the least we can. We're going to do it in the most bureaucratic and, and non-crisis, non-urgent way. Um, and so it, it was doomed to fail. And those choices were made very early on. And for weeks and weeks, uh, people at the White House and State Department kept saying we were considering all options. And they kind of strung along the veterans and the other advocates with those words until finally the the advocates began to think, and they told me this, they were being played. Mm-hmm. They were being taken for fools by an administration that they had a lot of faith in because they actually knew people in the administration at the very highest levels who they thought were truly the kind of humanitarian-minded officials who would care about this. 
And they just didn't understand that they were being, in a sense, gaslighted, and it was just not going to happen. So let's talk about this, the, all of these groups, because, you know, one of the most dramatic parts of this whole story in, in your article is, you know, once the administration, it was clear the administration was failing to solve this problem, was failing to plan for the safe evacuation of, of the allies. You had all of these you know, groups of soldiers and veterans and ordinary citizens and congressmen, journalists who came together to save the lives. What really comes through in your piece, though, is the intensity of the bond between these troops and uh, these these veterans and the Afghan allies. This was not I mean, this was there was a special bond yeah. that formed with them that gives this a really very powerful emotional overlay, even above the politics. And they felt very, very intensely and did extraordinary things to save human lives. It's it's absolutely true. I mean, I think the word love is entirely yeah. appropriate here. I wrote at length about one currently serving army captain who I call Alice Spence. Yeah, I want to talk about her. Yeah, tell me about her. She's a mid-30s, mid-career army officer who was deployed to Afghanistan as a what they call a CST, cultural support team, meaning she was partnering with Afghan women in the special forces. And this is extraordinary. I didn't even know this went yeah. on. Afghan and American women accompanied Afghan and American special forces. I had never men read that before. No, right. On combat missions, on raids against the Taliban and the Islamic State. They, as she put it, walked towards death together. And she became very close to several of the Afghan women that she went on these missions with. These were the FTPs, the female tactical platoons. Exactly. Exactly. What a story, so yeah. It, it's incredible because these are Afghan women. Most Afghan women who serve in, served in their military um, were in offices, but these women were in combat and were had weapons, used their weapons, were fired upon, and had to deal with very difficult situations with children and women who were in the company of the targets of the raids. And that was their main job, was to search, talk to, question those children and women. And so incredibly difficult work. You can imagine the bond that formed, because there were so few of them. In mm -hmm. a 50-person platoon, there might be only two or three Americans and five hmm. or six Afghan women. So they got closer than the men did, um, than the Afghan men and the American men. And those bonds survived the redeployment back home of these women. And Captain Spence began to worry about her FTP friends, um, especially after Biden gave the speech saying the war is over and, and got in touch with them. And she showed me all of their texts and the texts are just heartbreaking because they are not just full of panic and fear and a sense of urgency, but full of love and full of deep, deep concern. She said to me, you know, I didn't do this because of some high, you know, ideal, uh, some moral imperative. I did it because these are my friends and I care about them. And so what she did when August came and Kabul fell and one of these Afghan women texted her from the streets of Kabul saying, they're here, they're in my neighborhood. What do I do? Captain Spence spent the next, well, really up until today, nonstop working her contacts, working her phone and being in touch with 
more and more Afghan women, because once they heard about her, she became the go-to person and until hundreds and hundreds of texts were pouring into her phone saying, help me, the Taliban are going to kill me because they kill women who serve in the military. She and her comrades, her friends, both active duty and, and former soldiers, really made it their burden to do everything they could to, um, to bring these women into the airport with their children, with their husbands in some cases, and to get them on flights out. And they had some successes, very hard one, and many, many failures. And an important point, Charlie, is for every one that this unofficial evacuation succeeded in getting out, there are five, six, seven, ten who did not get out. See, this is what was the most harrowing thing about reading your article, George, um, was, you know, thinking of those people who were left behind and the, and the descriptions of the absolute chaos and the terror at the gates where there was no system. Uh, you know, some people got in and some people got out and really no rhyme or reason. Luck seems to be a huge amount. People who, yeah. who had documents were sometimes turned away. People without documents sometimes got in. It depended who was on the gate, whether somebody knew someone. These enlisted officers making really these Sophie's choices. This family gets in, this family doesn't. I mean, that's that's the nightmare scenario here because they're there, there was no system. Okay, I'm going to come back to this, but so the afterwards, no, the Biden administration said this was this historic triumph, and we were told that they'd airlifted 124,000 people, you know, out before August 30th. But you cite estimates that 90 percent, 90 percent of these special immigration visa holders are still there. Didn't get out. Yeah, that that's from uh, an organization, Human Rights First, which mm-hmm. was has been instrumental in trying to help Afghans get out. Yeah, the special immigrant visa, which Congress created for Afghan interpreters and other direct employees of the U.S. government and military, there's now forty thousand principal applicants, and if you add family members, we're talking maybe one hundred and fifty thousand people. And at the time of the fall of Kabul, there were about 18,000. And Human Rights First estimates that about 10% of those, and they're not all visa holders, some of them are visa applicants, but some visa holders, 90% could not get into the airport and out of the country. So that's, among others, that's who we left behind. So let me read you something you wrote. The, the, the achievement of the, the number we did get out, um, the achievement belonged mainly to the troops and civilians who worked tirelessly at the airport and to the ordinary people who worked tirelessly overseas on WhatsApp and Signal, and above all, to the courage born of mortal panic and tenacious hope of the Afghans who lost everything. Without the unof- unofficial evacuation efforts, many of them funded by private citizens, the number would have been far lower, but nobody, nobody that you talked to who was actually involved described it as a success. So here I had another flashback to sort of Vietnam. The administration has really not acknowledged any of that. They were engaging in a lot of happy talk and based on your account, disinformation in those final days. Well, some of the groups that were working with Afghans to get out, I asked them, what was your relation with the U.S. government? during the evacuation? You know, was it cooperation? Was it competition? Was it... And one of them said to me, it's like you're trying to play baseball and the other team won't acknowledge that you're on the field. It was like they didn't, the, the U.S. government depended on the unofficial groups uh, to give them names because, as I said, they never compiled those names. They didn't know who they were trying to get out. They didn't know where they were, how to reach them, how to get them to the airport. 
The U.S. government was focused on, as it legally had to be, American citizens and green card holders, and secondarily on its own embassy staff. That's maybe, I don't know, eight or 10,000 people. Most of them got out. And if they didn't get out before the 31st, many of them have gotten out since. But that leaves tens of thousands of Afghans who in some ways are at greater risk because an American citizen is unlikely to be killed by the Taliban right now. They don't hmm. want that kind of attention. They're, they're, they've been quite liberal toward foreign journalists, for example. The people who are in danger are the female uh, army lieutenant who lives in some small town in the middle of Afghanistan. There's no media there's no eyes on this. No foreign press is able to cover this and no local press is able to yeah. cover it. And they're the ones who are being, who are getting the threatening phone calls, whose houses are being searched and who in some cases are being killed. And they are the ones that got left behind in great numbers because we didn't plan to bring them out. And they're the ones that these outside groups focused on the most. And at best, they got some cooperation from the US government you know, they would say, we have this bus coming toward the gate. Can it get in? And the U.S. government, the State Department people at the airport who were working incredibly hard and had a, an absolutely horrible hand to play, they would say either, yeah, we can get that gate open right now or it's impossible because the Taliban won't let them through. Or we have other people. But it was chaotic, pure chaos. And the the key thing was to have not a senior official, but a sergeant who was inside the airport, who you knew and could get on the phone and say, could you please go to the North Gate? There's a group of women. Here's what they look like. I'm going to send them your picture. And when you get to the gate, could you wave wow. your, your wow. monster your monster yeah. energy drink mm -hmm. and they'll know it's you and then they'll come forward and you can let them in. And for all that to happen, everything had to line up. And most often something didn't line up and they didn't get in. Yeah, you have a section called the, the damned and the saved you know, and what the difference was, you know, and as you said, it came down to three factors, you know, character, the resourcefulness, doggedness. Second was, you know, what the the uh, connections and the third was was luck. I, I can't even imagine what these troops, uh, what they have experienced and the memories they're going to have watching children and parents losing one another, seeing children trampled underfoot. Uh, the, you described one Marine seeing um a boy being knifed who was climbing over the wall, a tear gas canister hitting the side of an eight-year-old girl's face, melting her skin. And, and and just these stories of, you know, guys who, you know, managed to fight through the crowds and get up and American official says, no, nah, I'm, I'm not letting you in. And, and this guy, one of the, the individuals you described by the name Khan, refuses to be turned away, shows his special immigrant visa. And you know, he keeps pushing and insisting. I mean, it's th this, this, this line between... Um, you know, absolute disaster and salvation was so narrow and so fraught, and it went on for such a long time, does not make the, the U.S. government look good. So I want to talk about just the decisions that were made. For people who think, well, this was always going to be chaotic, they made a couple of decisions, including one was to shut down all the air bases and have one point of extra uh, exit in Kabul. That was one of the key decisions, wasn't it? that led to what happened. Yeah, essentially the military withdrawal, what they call the retrograde, ended in July. So by the first week of July, all US troops were out except for around 800 or 1,000 who were left behind to protect the embassy and the airport. 
So essentially, all the hard assets, all the weaponry, the contractors who kept the Afghan um, Air Force working, all the intelligence support, the logistical support, everything the Afghan military depended on to have a fighting chance against the Taliban was taken out. But we had not begun any evacuations of Afghans at that point. And so inevitably what happened was the Taliban began sweeping through the country and one major city after another fell. Herat, Kandahar, even Mazar-e-Sharif, which is in fairly friendly territory in the north, Jalalabad. So all these regional airports that might have been departure points for Afghans who did not live in Kabul. And this was a mistake the administration made. They thought that almost everyone they needed to get out was in the Kabul area. Not true. Many, many of them were scattered around the country. The exits were closed when the Taliban took those cities and those airfields and began setting up checkpoints on the highways. Even getting to Kabul on by land became extremely dangerous. So essentially, we allowed the Taliban to take the country before we'd even begun to get people out. And why didn't we, as I said earlier, Charlie, sit down with the Taliban? Because we talked to them all the time. We had regular negotiations in Doha, Qatar. Why didn't we say to them, you cannot take the Herat airport yet because we're not ready for you to do it because we have people there that we need to get out. We're going to create a green zone around the airport and we're going to start bringing people out. I think the Taliban might have had to, to talk to us about that because they wanted us out. And we should have set conditions for our departure. Instead, they had all the initiative as the country shrank to a little circle around Kabul. And even then, even then, we were still in this slow motion days as if we had months and months and months to do this and didn't really need to act with any urgency. And so Kabul uh, became the last point of departure. And the Kabul airport has one single runway. It is really an achievement that tens of thousands of people were evacuated in essentially about a 10 to 12 day period from a one runway airport. And that is a tribute to the Air Force, to the troops at the airport, to the State Department officials at the airport, to the people outside the country who are helping Afghans via phone, and above all to the Afghans, because to bring your children to the airport in those circumstances was such a courageous thing to do. The credit does not go to the U.S. government because the U.S. government created that situation. Well, and and one of the big miscalculations, of course, was whether or not Kabul was going to fall. And you you make it very clear how unthinkable that was, not just to Washington, but to the you know the Afghans themselves. Um, and you tell this one story that's again one of these haunting stories where you write about the fall of, of Kabul and the Taliban were as unprepared as everybody else for the speed of their conquest. And then you describe this conversation between one of the leaders of the Taliban and the head of U.S. Central Command, General McKenzie. And apparently the Taliban asked McKenzie whether the Americans wanted control of the city during the evacuation. Yeah. And that, McKenzie said, no, we're just we're just doing the airport and nothing else. And we're not going to go past the perimeter. As you say that exchange um, would contribute to making the evacuation the nightmare that it became. I mean, that was, again, one of those key pivot moments where the Taliban are saying, hey, uh, do you guys want to keep uh, Kabul for a while? And we're like, hey, no, thanks. That was originally reported in the in the Washington mm-hmm. Post. And it was a crucial moment because the Taliban were basically saying, we are not trying to make things harder for you. We want you out of here. What do you want? 
Um, and in fact, we might not want Kabul yet. We're not sure we're ready. Kabul to the Taliban was this giant five million person city in which they were pretty unpopular and that they didn't yeah. know very well. And they, I think they expected a house to house fight. So why not let the Americans get out of here before we have to go in and control a city that we may not be able to control? So instead, from Washington, this wasn't General McKenzie's decision. It was from the White House. The decision was, we are going to secure the airport. That's our evacuation plan. Get our embassy to the airport. Get our American personnel out. Get American citizens out and whoever else we can. And that's it. So instead of having a much more flexible environment where there could have been secure corridors between points around the city and the airport so that Afghans could collect and be brought in in a semi-orderly way instead of the really lethal lethal chaos at the gates that, that, that resulted, we essentially gave that chance up and, and said, we're going to uh, reduce it to the airport perimeter, which really exposed the Afghans to the, the chaos and violence of trying to get in those, those tiny little openings, but also exposed us to, to terrorist bombings, which is what happened. Why did they make that decision? Do you know? Do we know why in the White House they said, no, we're going to do it this way? Because as you describe it, that seems completely foreseeable that this would happen. So what, what, what was going on? There just, there was Biden so locked into getting out by this date, he just like, no, no to everything? I don't know because I, I couldn't get an answer yeah. to that. But what I can surmise based on all the reporting I did do is exactly the answer you just gave. For example, Biden actually could have extended the evacuation. Um, August 31st was a self-imposed deadline for the last troops to come out, which had originally been September 11th, which seemed like a very strange oh, terrible date to choose. And I think because of the optics of September 11th, they decided to move it up to August 31st. Biden decided, uh, despite a lot of pressure to, to keep going, Biden decided that is going to remain the last day, even though we're no longer withdrawing troops. We're now in a full-on evacuation, which they did not expect. Now, some people say the Taliban would have stopped cooperating with the evacuation after August 31st. That's possible. I don't think we even tried. I don't think we okay. negotiated that. And the, the lack of trying, the lack of imagination, the lack of initiative, that tells me there was a lack of will. There was simply a lack of will to do more than the president and his top advisors thought was absolutely necessary. So what is happening now? Are we still making an effort to get some of these folks out? Um, is, is the U.S. government, uh, has it learned its lesson? Is it, are, are there still private efforts to rescue some of these people? The U.S. government has not learn from this. I don't know if they will. I hope they do because there's so many important lessons to be taken because we will be in this situation again. We've been in it before. The short answer is very little is happening. There are some U.S. government chartered flights leaving the Kabul airport with specific groups of people, whether it's American citizens, green card holders, or SIV, special immigrant visa holders. Those flights are few and far between. Now, there are some practical reasons for that, but there's also, again, just a lack of will. The private groups have kept going, and they've kept going in the face of, at times, non-cooperation and at times, outright 
obstruction from the U.S. government. And the ones who I am talking to, and there are many, are absolutely at wit's end. They feel as if the U.S. government has left them to hold the bag, left them to spend their own time, their own money, doing what it should be the U.S. government's job to do, while the government, with a certain bureaucratic apparatus in place, does almost nothing. And I can actually give you a number. The number Hmm. of Afghans who have qualified for repatriation here, whether it's through refugee resettlement or through a, a program called humanitarian parole, which simply brings them in on a temporary basis, uh, is of, of all those who've applied since the fall of Kabul, 1% have been oh, have gotten past the first couple of steps. 1%. 1%, actually less than 1%. So that, and that's not just the State Department. Jeez. That's the Department of Homeland Security, which is being extremely restrictive in how it regards these Afghans. If they can't check every box, uh, they don't qualify. But really, it all comes down to political leadership and the White House. So that, that to me is where the, the obstruction is. And, and the, the advocates and, and friends of Afghans are absolutely in despair because they have been doing this now for five months on their own time and feel as if at this point they're, they're doing it alone. Well, the piece is The Betrayal. It is in The Atlantic Magazine, 20,000 words long. It is a masterful account. It is deeply disturbing, but it is definitely a must read. And George Packer's books include, of course, The Unwinding and Inner History of the New America, uh, which won the National Book Award is most recent, which we've talked about before on this podcast. And you and I spoke about it in Madison, Wisconsin over the summer. Uh, Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal, which was released last year. And if you could do me a favor, George, please consider turning this piece into a book because it is an extraordinary uh, episode in history and you are a fantastic storyteller. George Packer, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. We will do this all over again.